Hey, y'all, from NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. It is Tuesday, which means we have a conversation for you. Today's guest, Al Roker. Yes, Al Roker, longtime weatherman for the Today Show on NBC. Uh, but besides that work, what you don't know about Al or might not know about Al is that he's an author. He's written a lot of books, and he has a new book out. It's called Ruthless Tide. This book is all about one of America's deadliest floods, the Johnstown Flood of 1889. Johnstown, back then, was this steel town in central Pennsylvania, and the story of this flood is epic. Uh, It killed 2,200 people there. um, And it has all these lessons about climate change and greed and infrastructure and the power of nature. Uh, So I talked to Al Roker about that book and what lessons that book and that story have for us today. We also talk barbecue, his cousin, who was very, very famous. We'll talk about that. How he bikes to work. Uh, It was really good chat. Al was in New York. I was in Culver City. All right. Enjoy. You actually biked into the NPR New York studio today. I I did not, only because uh, I was told I could not bring my bicycle inside. Why not? Well, uh, I I don't know. I bet you could. You're out They they said I couldn't, and uh, I just had a bicycle stolen. Uh And this is a new bike, and I did not want to leave it outside. What kind of bike do you have? I have a Bianchi. I have a. I'm nothing quite that fancy. I have a specialized. So it's. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not racing bikes. Nor am I. I just got duped by the bike shop. They're (laughs) like, you should buy this, and I said, okay, sure, fine. And here's this form-fitting lumpy Uh lycra suit to go with it. Where would you have biked from? So because our office is in Bryant Park in Manhattan. uh, Bryant Park. I would have probably biked straight. I I live on the Upper East Side. I would have uh, biked down from um, uh, the Upper East Side, down Fifth Avenue. Or I might have gone through the park and then you know cut cut through on uh, on Seventh or biking in New York City can be scary. You know, the, the scare, I'm not worried about cars. I'm worried more about pedestrians. These idiots who do not look up because they're walking on yeah. their phone yeah. and get yeah. indignant <laughs> when if you bike block past. their way. <laughs> I just, I sometimes, I just stop in front of them and let them bump into me, and then. <laughs> Just to see what happens. What do they do when they realize well, they, they bumped into Al Roker? Well, they, I don't think they even know. They just like they're so annoyed that I've <laughs> interrupted their their electronic reverie, oh, man. Uh, and then they go right back to their phone. You know, so you know, Ruthless Tide is not your first book. How many books have you written? I've been looking this a uh, lot. This is my twelfth book. Look at you. Yeah. Look. What at are they me. all about? Yeah. Uh, well, the first the, the the very first one was called "Don't Make Me Stop This Car: Adventures in Fatherhood." It was about <laughs> it was about. Uh, my journey in adopting my oldest girl and then uh, going into uh, my second wife, uh, Deborah, and I were having trouble conceiving. And, and it was basically a, a, our journey with uh, IVF. Yeah. And uh, uh, you know, so that was the first book. And then I wrote another. I wrote a couple of cookbooks and I wrote a, a series of essays and edited some essays from other folks about fatherhood. Mm-hmm. I've written three murder mysteries. Wow. My wife and I wrote a book together about uh, parenting and the mistakes we've made. <laughs> uh-huh. It's a wide variety. Did you write a barbecue book? I did. You wrote a barbecue book. I'm from Texas, so I feel very strongly about this. Al Roker's Big Bad Book of Barbecue. What's your favorite barbecue joint? Whatever's in front of me. <laughs> but if you had to go to one, if I had to go to one, boy, that's that's a tough one. I like, I mean, I like uh, Arthur Bryant's in uh, in Kansas City okay. and Austin uh, Franklin Barbecue. Franklin's is really good. Um, you know, yeah. I'm I'm uh, there's you know some great up. barbecue all over. Uh, there's a good spot in L.A. called Bloodsos. 
Oh, yes. Yeah. It's real oh, good. yes. It's real yes. good. Mm-mm. Uh, your book, Ruthless Tide, tell folks what it's about. Well, it's about uh, the Gilded Age in this country, uh, this 1889. Mm-hmm. This is when America was um, moving in and, and taking over as an industrial powerhouse. Yeah. And the center of that was uh, Western Pennsylvania. And uh, the, some of the, the big, bold-faced names of, the, of their time, uh, Carnegie, Frick, Mellon, they all wanted to have a nice, idyllic getaway from the pollution and the noise and the, the hustle and bustle of uh, Western PA. So they, they were able to uh, buy some property and created the South Fork Hunt and Fish Club. Hmm. And uh, they wanted to be able to get up into the mountains and, you know, breathe the clean, fresh air. And, and so they, they got this piece of property that had a dam on it, and the uh, Connemaw River ran past the area. So they decided, let's use this old dam. We'll rebuild it, and uh, we'll dam it up, uh, dam up the river and create a lake. And uh, we, we fast forward a couple of years to uh, May 31st, 1889. They got a big, big rainstorm that dumped almost 12 inches of rain in 24 hours. Hmm. And the dam basically just couldn't hold it. It burst, and within a half hour, 20 million tons of water wow. went uh, went speeding down at a, speeds of 40 miles per hour, uh, some heights, times reaching heights of 60 feet, and uh, it, it wiped out four towns in the city of, of uh, Johnstown, kills yeah. 2,200 people. My goodness. And, and which to this day worse is still, than Katrina. Yeah, it's the worst, it's the worst flooding uh, catastrophe in American history. So there are many, many factors that led to this. Um, Deforestation, which helped exacerbate the flooding. The actual production of the steel, the way they made it, it clogged the rivers, which made the rivers more prone to flooding. Mm -hmm. And the dam itself that was there was pretty shoddy. So there were many man-made factors that kind of converged to make this happen, no? Well, besides besides the dam, you also had, you know, overpopulation. This was Mm. a very dense, crowded area. Uh, and and what really struck me was, you know what, we are at a point now, here some almost 130 years later, where we are um, uh, uh, we're doomed to make the same mistakes because we're, we are all at once uh, relaxing or repealing environmental protections, zoning ordinances and protections, building codes. All these things are, are being taken down or weakened just as we are becoming more susceptible to extreme weather. Yeah. I'm thinking uh, about Houston and, and like Hurricane yeah, Harvey and this exactly. place that is like full of McMansions, basically under sea level. Yeah. Built on a floodplain. Yeah. They all get flooded about a year ago or less and they're already rebuilding back mm-hmm. on the same plots. Yeah. I mean, we saw, in fact, uh, even as we're speaking right now, massive flooding going on in, in Texas. We're seeing an increase in extreme rainfall amounts uh, in the last 30 years. I mean, mm-hmm. that it, it, there's a better than 47% chance in the Northeast that you will have a rain event that exceeds expectations. Mm. In the Southeast, it's about 35%. In uh, in the Gulf, in Central Gulf, you're talking anywhere from 25 to 30% greater chance of extreme rain events. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you, you start putting all this together and we're, we're, are we going to see an event where 2,200 people are killed? God, I hope not. But we are setting ourselves up for, for uh, you know, a lot of casualties, a lot yeah. of fatalities, and, and a lot of property destruction. Yeah. What is it about us that we don't get the lesson? Well, you know, I, I think we are. I think uh, the average person is. Um, I don't know that our average politician is uh, or whatever special interest they're, they're beholden to. 
you know, I think people care about their environment. I think they care about uh, their safety and well-being. They care about their family's safety and well-being. They care about their town and their 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 surrounding environment. But you know, if we don't pay attention, uh, all of a sudden we turn around and uh, regulations are are revoked or reversed or or weakened. And and when when something happens, people are looking around and going, "Hey, wait a minute!" I mean, you look what happened in uh, Ellicott City, Maryland. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you saw the video. These, I mean, raging rivers. I mean, the the town, it was almost like uh, that, that uh, attraction at Universal where there's a flash flood and all of a sudden there's, oh, there's all this water. Well, that was a thousand-year event. Mm. Uh, they had one just like it two years earlier. Mm. You know, 2,000-year events in two years? Yeah. And I think people forget the power of water. or They either don't realize it mm-hmm. or they don't understand it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it only takes about four to six inches of water moving at about four miles per hour to knock you off your feet. But not you. I've seen you out there in the water. Well, yeah, I, I, yeah, back in the old days. Uh, <laughs> although back then I floated. I really displaced more water. <laughs> and, and and water will find its way. That's right. You, you it think, goes everywhere. You think you can do whatever. It's going to find yeah. its way. And, and in Johnstown, I mean, this thing, people described it as an unleashed monster. Mm. And what was interesting about it, nor the, the normal course of events would have been that this system, this, this roiling, seething mass of water would have expended some of its energy on the way down, on the 14-mile trek down to Johnstown. But because of what, the, the, the physicality of what was happening, this thing was, taking, was stripping uh, forests, boulders, rocks, mm. Mm. Uh, uh, buildings, people, livestock, locomotives. Uh, it oh took out God. a it took out a barbed wire factory. So there were m- literally miles of razor sharp wire in the water. And it, it halfway down, it hits this uh, uh, viaduct that's made of stone. And because of all the debris, the tree trunks, and all the it it basically dams itself up against the the viaduct. And all this water is getting a chance to pile up, it, whereas it would have dissipated some of its energy on the trip. But yeah. now it has a chance to re- literally regroup and regain strength. And eventually the viaduct gives way, the stone viaduct gives way. Now it's got all that debris in there and it just mm-hmm. keeps going. So it, it is uh, obliterating yeah. everything in its path. Yeah. What does that sound like? This like yeah. locomotive of water with all this yeah, stuff. Yeah, and in that's it. you know that's as best anybody could could describe it was really a, a hundred locomotives. You know, it just had this incredible roar that people who were standing to the side of it uh, along hillsides couldn't couldn't believe it. It was suddenly there was quiet, and then this deafening roar for a matter of minutes, and then nothing, just the sound of gurgling yeah. water. Did anybody in this community or across the country before this disaster happened say, hold on, this could end badly? Well, you know, there were a number of people in Johnstown, a number of uh, movers and shakers who who actually went up to the dam to watch as they were building it. And, and they even the town even uh, had a, their own engineer come up who told who said this is not adequate. It had been a dam that had been used by a canal company. And it actually had valves that allowed them to uh, uh, release water if the dam got too high. Well, these folks made two mistakes. When they re- rebuilt on this, the foundation of this old dam, uh, the pipes were removed, but there was nothing put back in. And they lowered the height of the dam so that 
the rich guys and their families could drive their cars and their horse carriages across the dam so that they could have this beautiful view of the valley and the lake. And mm. uh, so, so there was, you know, there was less dam. And what dam there was, there was no way to release water to uh, relieve pressure. Yeah. And this is before zoning laws, yeah. environmental impact studies, things like that. You know, uh, money talked. Yeah. You know, so much of the run-up to this disaster is a story of class divisions and how rich people in this, you know, part of the world got to kind of run amok to the detriment of poor people. But you talk about in the book how the aftermath of uh, this flood kind of uh, exacerbated and highlighted some anti-immigrant sentiment. Talk about that. The the, the people that, that made the wealth for, you know, the chosen few mm-hmm. uh, were living in squalor. We're living in these tenements, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Irish, uh, Italian, Eastern European Jews. And, and they were packed in mm-hmm. uh, with, with not a lot of room and not a lot of places to go. Uh, so what, when this did happen, uh, and there was very little warning because the state of the art of communication at that point was telegraph. The phones were just coming in, but there was nobody to, to use the phone. And so when uh, when one young man who risked his life uh, knew that the dam, the dam collapse was imminent, rode like a bat out of hell in, in horrific weather conditions to get to the closest telegraph office to send word down line. But when they mm-hmm. posted it outside the telegraph office, uh, people kind of scoffed at it. First of all, they didn't know who the guy was. Wow. Uh, and there had been some some uh, uh, dam breaches before, nothing uh, catastrophic like this. So th- they had lived through it. They said, ah, we're, we're not worried. And, and so those folks who were who had the least amount of resources and the least amount of time to get out uh, were the ones who suffered more greatly. Yeah. You write in the book about several heroes of this Johnstown disaster. Which one was your favorite? You know, um, I think Clara Barton. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, who who was one of the founders of the Red Cross. Up until this point, uh, in this time in our country's history, and you got to remember, this is 1889. I mean, uh, there are still a lot of people alive who, who had fought the Civil War. And the Red Cross was m- mostly uh, dealing with helping returning veterans, uh, soldiers, folks like that. But here was an opportunity. Clara Barton saw that this was the biggest disaster that had befallen this country at this point. And it was all in all the newspapers. And she saw an opportunity that she could help, that her organization could help. They had the skills. They had mm. the know-how. Uh, and, you know, look, at that time, it was a very chauvinist society. She came in, and the, the guys in charge thought, oh, oh, what can we do to help this woman? And she says, no, no, I'm, I'm here to help you. And in no time, her army of uh, people who had come in from Philadelphia, from New York, uh, yeah, all got together and came in and formed uh, hospitals, uh, tent cities, uh, commissaries, uh, clothing, basically st- uh, uh, warehouses with clothing and, and supplies. And, and it was the template, really, for what would become the greatest and, and most well-known relief organization, not just in the country, but uh, as we've seen now, I- internationally and in the world. And I think out of something so terrible that something that has to this day is saving life upon life and and helping people is is pretty amazing. All right, time for a break. When we come back, some lessons from the Johnstown flood about climate change. BRB. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Bloom with three O's. Is your 401k on pace? Go to bloom401k.com slash NPR for a smarter, simpler way to grow your 401k. Bloom does all the work for you so you can relax, then retire. See how your 401k stacks up in minutes. Enter your employer-held 401k login info at bloom401k.com and get a free analysis. Use code NPR to get one month managed free. Did you know you can set your Amazon Echo to give you the news every morning? Just say, enable up first. Then tomorrow, say, what's the news? And start your day with up first. So, you know, thinking about all of this and the disaster and Johnstown, it's about how this ascendant industry set up this community for a big fall. And steel was big and steel was changing the country and steel was making money for a lot of people. What is our steel now, our industry that we allow to run unchecked because it's so successful and makes us so much money? What is our steel right now and what is the Johnstown that that industry could bring? Well, you know, look, I I think there's a um, I think people are ignoring industries that could uh, alleviate problems for a, uh, hmm. with, the, with the Johnstown. You know, when we talk about uh, uh, mining and we talk about a certain fossil fuel exploration, all these uh, uh, these folks who work in our coal industry, which, by the way, is not a healthy industry. I mean, from from the coal miner standpoint, if you could hmm. move people into uh, retrain them in, and get them into solar and, and clean energy, wind power, things like that, which are going to just continue to grow, yeah. you know, and yeah. and not have a detrimental effect on the environment. Mm. You know, I could not help but thinking when I was reading the book about fracking and yeah. how about how this new this new method um is linked to earthquakes and other weird stuff. Yep. Is there a fracking Johnstown coming is what I'm asking? I, you know, I don't know. That's a good question. That's a very good question. Uh, and, and we won't know until it's too late. Yeah. What is Johnstown like now? You know, it's a beautiful area. Uh, there's a, a wonderful uh, uh, national park dedicated and, mu- and a, a terrific museum uh, uh, dedicated to uh, the heroes of this place. And, and uh, yeah, look, it... it, it, it never reached the return to the level of manufacturing that it once had. But that whole section of of, uh, Pennsylvania has really moved into more service, IT, medical. uh, You know, they've they've gotten into industries or businesses that that are more of a growth industry. There are so many lessons in this book about what we do as humans to the earth, what we allow rich people to do to poor people. What for you is the biggest lesson from your book, Ruthless Tide? You know, I I really do think that, uh, you know, there's that old saying, those who don't learn from history's mistakes are apt to repeat them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think we are at a juncture right now, and I'm not trying to get on a soapbox or anything, mm-hmm. but, you know, we are experiencing climate change. Now, you can... I'll 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 give you that okay maybe do we, we can we prove it's 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 being caused by human activity well I I think we can but I I'll I'll just let that one go let's just go with the idea that our climate is in fact changing yeah by every metric it is changing and it's not changing for the better 
and that if we do not uh, protect ourselves, because if, if, at a certain point we are going to pass the tipping point. So now we have to start preparing for that future. Uh, for that tipping point. Uh, for that tipping point and for what that means. I mean, look, if, if for no other reason, if you uh, want, if you look at it from a a homeland defense point of view, mm-hmm. no less than the Department of Defense in a study last year said that of the 3,500 military bases and installations in this country and around the world, a full 1,700 are susceptible to damage or destruction because of climate change. Mm. Now, that, if, if, if nothing else moves you, it should be that. I think, and I'm speaking especially for me, you know, as one person, knowing that that tipping point is very well ahead of us, it's hard to take seriously the idea that if I just recycled more or got a Tesla, that I could prevent it. Like, something really, really big has to change for all of us to change things. But it also has to be, you know, it's also the smaller things. I mean, the company I work for, Comcast, they've got got a, a, a... a whole division about sustainability. And I, I'm trying to get them to, you know, install just those those water fountains you see at the airport that, you know, you, everybody gets a stainless steel bottle instead of the plastic. I mean, the, the amount of plastic that's in our oceans. Yeah. And that's just one little thing. Yeah. But if everybody does it, then we, we, we make we we have a big effect. And that's what I think that that's what you know, it's that. Oh, well, what can I do? Well, you can do those little things, because if everybody does a little thing, it adds up to a big thing. Yeah. You know, thinking about this kind of hubris that allows for a Johnstown to happen or allows for us to ignore things like climate change. Is that something that is uniquely American or is it just uniquely human? I don't know that it's. I don't know it's us them. I mean, I think that there are people of goodwill. I mean, you know, you look at uh, what was it, 147 nations signed onto the Paris uh, Climate Accord, uh, one left. But you know, I, I think that there is goodwill and good intent by people, by governments. Uh, I, I and I think people themselves. I think people are ahead of their own governments when it comes to this sort of thing. I think most Americans want us to be good stewards of the environment. I really do. All right. One more break here. In a moment, we set the record straight on a very tall tale about how Al Roker became America's weatherman. We'll be right back. Support for NPR comes from Discover Card. Get your free credit scorecard with your FICO credit score. It's available to everyone, even if you're not a customer. Learn more at discovercard.com slash credit scorecard. Limitations apply. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, host of the TED Radio Hour. And on our latest episode, we're exploring the causes and consequences of hatred. What makes it such a powerful force and why some people feel its pull more deeply. Take a listen to the TED Radio Hour on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I think that a lot of our listeners look at you and your career and kind of admire it so much because you have been this kind of beacon of kind, warm, smiling stability for so many viewers for decades. And you keep going at it 
you always have an upbeat outlook on all of this stuff. You're always smiling. You always know what you're doing and on your A game. Um, how do you stay motivated and how have you not just quit the whole thing? Well, uh, A, because the, the money's great. Uh, <laughs> so I'm not going to quit that. I mean, Willard Scott says you never get off the train until they throw you off. Um, that's a, do ride to the last stop. And even then, you hide in the bathroom until they come find you. Uh, uh, you know, listen, I, I, my dad was a New York City bus driver. And uh, he always had a great attitude. He knew his, his, his customers, his passengers. He eventually worked his way into management, but he was always upbeat. He was always positive. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, that's, that's who I try to be. Uh, but, 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 you know, listen, I, I, this, is, this is a terrific gig. I get to go places and do things I never, ever dreamed possible. And and so uh, uh, yeah, there's there's no reason to be ticked off. I, although it's funny, mm-hmm. uh, this is about I don't know uh, a couple of years ago. My daughter, who's 19 now, but she was like 15, 16, and she didn't do something. And I don't even remember what it was, but I just kind of lit into her. I just was mm-hmm. yelling at her, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden she bursts into tears and she goes, "This isn't fair. America always sees the happy Al Roker. They don't <laughs> see this Al Roker." <laughs> So, well, if America didn't clean America didn't clean their room, this is the Al Roker they'd see. Yeah, clean it up. <laughs> I love that. You're from Queens. I am from Queens, New York. I, we lived in Brooklyn for a little bit, but most of my time was was spent in Queens. Where in Queens? Uh, St. Albans, Cambria Heights. Okay. Right near the Nassau County border. Growing up, when did you say I'm going to be a weatherman? Uh, you know, I didn't really say it. It was more by accident. I had no intentions of being on TV. I wanted to be a writer or producer. And in fact, I went to uh, SUNY Oswego Mm -hmm. in upstate New York, right on Mm -hmm. Lake Ontario. And I took my first uh, television performance class. And my department chairman said, Roker, you've got the perfect face for radio. (laughs) <laughs> um, um, but he also put me up for my first TV job. Also, an, uh, a uh, another uh, classmate in that same class mm-hmm. was one uh, young man named Jerry Seinfeld. Really? How was yeah. he in school? He was he was terrific. He was a great guy. Uh, but okay. he left after sophomore year, transferred down to Queens College because he uh-huh. you know wanted to do stand up, and obviously yeah. the, the opportunity is much greater down in New York. Wow. Well, can you imagine what he would have become if he had stayed all four years in, in at, at SUNY Oswego? Um, he might have still made it. He might have made it. I haven't heard from him. I don't know what he's doing <laughs> these days. <laughs> I read that you wanted to be a cartoonist for a bit growing up. Yes, I still do. I, I you know, anime, I, I, my dream job was would have been to be an animator for Walt Disney. Really? You know, oh, gosh, yes. Well, Pixar these days, huh? Uh, or Pixar. Well, both. I mean, you know, because, uh, you know, Walt Disney Animation is doing some some amazing stuff, too. And, yeah. And, and, you know, they've now that they've kind of moved into there. I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a big, big fan of that stuff. I, yeah. I love it. Well, then, okay, so then I'm sure you have in your mind the Disney animated film that you would make if you had all the budget in the world. What's that movie? What's the main character? What's the plot? Uh, it would be called Incredibles 2. <laughs> Which, by the way, is unbelievable. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, my gosh. Noted. I will check it out. I got some other uh, life facts of yours to fact check. These so, these weird relationships in your life that I was mm. reading up on. Um, okay. David Letterman helped you get on the Today Show? No. 
Uh, I don't know how that. that. I don't know how that came up. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Tell no, us the I, myth and tell us the truth. Well, I don't know what the myth is. It's, but a number of people have asked that. I. I mean, I would cross. David Letterman and I would cross paths because his studio was literally across from ours when uh-huh. I did uh, the local news here in New York, uh, uh-huh. live at five, and yeah. uh, News for New York. And he would send like Zippy the Chimp and the Mobile Monkey Cam into our studio while we were on live. And I make appearances on his show, and that was, but. Really, the person who was most responsible, in a way, for me to be on the Today Show is Willard Scott, uh, who took me under his wing when I I first met him in Washington, D.C., when we were both local weather people. But, you know, I started filling in for Willard uh, on Uh, the Today Show. And that's how that that happened. But David Letterman, I mean, and I adore the man, and I just think he's (laughs) terrific. Don't still don't understand the ZZ Top thing going, but wait, uh, what's the ZZ Top thing? Well, you know the beard. I don't know what's going on there. Oh, him, hit. Well, you know he's got woodland creatures in there. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, he's a little. His show was always a little bit too weird for me. That's what I liked about it. Okay, he had a. Uh, you probably don't remember. He had a daytime show. I did on NBC know that. at like uh-huh. eleven a.m. Huh. And it bombed horribly. Huh. Uh, it's too I mean, weird for daytime. Because he was, yeah, it was. I mean, if you thought it was weird at at, at eleven thirty at night or twelve thirty <laughs> at night when it was originally on, yeah. it was weird at ten thirty in the morning. Oh, I bet. Well, then I'm going to ask you another question. It's probably okay. a myth as well. Mm-hmm. Lenny Kravitz is your cousin. True. Well, okay. All right. Se- I got se- one. <laughs> second cousin. <laughs> okay. His Do grandfather and his grandfather and my grandfather are brothers, and the answer is no. We don't hang out. Uh, I mean, I'll see him you know, like when he shows up at the Today Show, and I've gone to a couple of concerts. And, hey, cuz, you know, but that's about it. <laughs> okay, but he's okay. Lenny Kravitz for gosh sake. He and the kids, Lenny... my kids, are very excited because it I'm gives sure. them some. It gives them some street cred. I'm sure he's amazing, Uncle Lenny. I love that. What's the next book? I, you know, somebody just asked me that today, literally on the way over here. I don't know. Um, uh, I really don't. I don't really plan that. When I did my my first historical weather book was three years ago. It was Storm of the Century, the mm-hmm. uh, the Galveston hurricane that wiped out the city of Galveston, mm-hmm. and, and I didn't know that I would do another one. And and then this came up. And and to be honest, I I was shocked that, that there was as much interest. I was worried that people would say, Ah, who cares? Uh, but but it, it's because of. I mean, ironically, I mean, we've had these crazy floods this year. Uh, that I think there's been some interest, and I think there is a parallel to today, and uh, and I, I'm not sure what's going on, but it got some good reviews, so I'm very grateful for that. But I I don't know what the next one is. I really don't. Um, I, but I that's the way I kind of uh, amble through life. I don't know what's coming up next. I don't. I love always admire these people. Oh, I've got a five year plan. <laughs> I agree. Five years. Jeez. I agree. I don't even. I'll be alive in five years. <laughs> tell, tell me about it. Well, I tell you what, if you want to make a book of your own cartoons, I would gladly purchase well, said you. book. Thank you yeah, very much. Most definitely. Uh, I'd, I'd like that. I this is so, so much fun being on, on, on NPR and, and podcasts. I, this is just, it's so hip, it's happening. You know, well, I you know, hip and I appreciate that. Hip and happening. Hip and happening, baby. Well, this was uh, truly an honor and a pleasure. I'm telling you the truth. I've been a fan of yours since as long as I can remember. So just thank you for doing you and being you and being just this wonderful role model of a positive black man on screen for so long. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Many thanks to Al Roker. His new book is called Ruthless Tide. Also, before we end this episode, one more plug for a live show that's happening. It's been a minute live and in person in Los Angeles. I'll be talking with John Cho about his new movie, Searching, July 30th. At the Lion Hotel in Koreatown in Los Angeles. I want you there. Tickets at nprpresents.org. 
All right. As always, do not forget to share your best thing all week. Tell me at any point throughout any week what the best part of your week was. Record yourself. Send the file to me. Send the file to me at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. All right. Back on Friday with our weekly wrap. Until then, thank you for listening. Talk soon.